Welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. It's Sunday, and today we are looking at Exodus 4 and Luke 7. And just this first part, I'm going to do the other two chapters in the evening. But yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word, and thank you so much for the privilege of hearing it in church today. Thank you for the reminders of your grace and of your salvation, especially through the Lord Jesus Christ. Please help us to continue listening and reading your word and obeying it in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Amen, Amen. So this is Exodus chapter four. Moses answered, "But behold, they will not believe me, nor listen to my voice, for they will say Yahweh has not appeared to you." Yahweh said to him, "What is that in your hand?" He said, "A rod." He said, "Throw it to the ground, on the ground." He threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And Moses ran away from it. <laughs> Yahweh said to Moses, "Stretch out your hand, and take it by the tail." He stretched out his hand, and he took it, and it became a rod, a staff in his hand. This is what. This is so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Yahweh said furthermore to him, "Now put your hand inside your cloak." He put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. He said, "Put your hand inside your cloak again." He put his hand inside his cloak again, and when he took it out of his cloak or his jacket, behold, it had turned again as his other flesh. It will happen if they will not believe you or listen to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. It will happen if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take the water of the river and pour it on the dry land. The water which you take out of the river will become blood on the dry land. Moses said to Yahweh, "O Lord, I am not eloquent." Neither before now, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of of a slow tongue. Yahweh said to him, "Who made man's mouth, or who makes one mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Isn't it I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and teach you what you shall speak." Moses said, "O Lord, please send someone else." Yahweh's anger burned against Moses, and he said, "What about Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Also, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. He will be your spokesman to the people." It will happen that he will be to you a mouth, and you will be to him as God. You shall take this rod in your hand, and with which you shall do the signs. Moses went and returned to Jethro his father-in-law, and said to him, "Please let me go and return to my brothers who are in Egypt, and see whether they are still alive." Jethro said to Moses, "Go in peace." Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, "Go return into Egypt, for all the men who sought your life." Are dead. Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and he returned to the land of Egypt. Moses took God's rod in his hand. 
Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back into Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put in your hand, but I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. You shall tell Pharaoh, Yahweh says, Israel is my son, my firstborn, and I have said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your firstborn son. On the way at a lodging place, Yahweh met Moses and wanted to kill him. <laughs> then Zipporah took a flint and cut off the foreskin of her son, ouch, and cast it at his feet. And she said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. Then she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Interesting. Yahweh said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. He went and met him on God's mountain and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all Yahweh's words with which he had sent him and all the signs with which he had instructed him. Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words which Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed and when they had heard, when they heard that Yahweh had visited the children of Israel and they had seen their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Ah, so this is continuing on from Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush on that mountain. Moses meets with God who calls him to go back to Egypt. You know, he's wanted for murder. <laughs> it's, he, they want to kill him. Uh, but God is sending him back to Egypt to save his people. And Moses is just reluctant and just hesitant and just not that confident. Said, send someone else. Yeah, she literally says that, send someone else instead of me. Um, but initially he says, you know, what if they don't believe me? So verse 1 they will not believe me. They won't listen to my voice. Or they said, actually, God didn't appear to you. Yahweh didn't appear to you. And God gives him three signs with the rod and with his hand and with the water. And actually, God says, um, maybe they won't believe the first or the second. And so God, you know, gives them in succession. You know, if they don't believe this, do the next one, then do the next one, then do the next one. And the first one is this, I guess, rod that he's been using as a shepherd you know that's why you know he's in the mountain he's been looking out for his sheep and god says throw it onto the ground verse three he threw it and he became into a snake <laughs> and he ran away i like how it says that moses was so afraid he ran away from it and that's just natural instinct whoa what just happened and it's a snake you know he turned into like a kitty cat meow <laughs> I, I don't think he'll run away from it but it was just so unexpected and, it, and you know, it's a dangerous thing, you know, snakes, venomous. But then God says to Moses, stretch out your hand and take the snake by the tail. And I guess, you know, it shows Moses' faithfulness that despite his fear, God says, do this and he does it. He reaches out his hand to the snake's tail. <laughs> he takes it and he doesn't say that what's going to happen to it. He just says, take it by the tail. So, but the moment he took hold of it, it became a rod in his hand. So that's supposed to be the sign that Moses is supposed to demonstrate to the people to, to prove to them, no, this is God who sent me to speak to you. And he says, so this is so that they may believe that 
Yahweh, the God of their fathers, has appeared to you. But God goes immediately into the second sign. Put your hand inside your jacket, your cloak. And when he took it out, it became leprous, leprous skin. And, you know, there is some symbolism in that. It's not just that this is, oh, well, you know, you had a skin disease, you know, use some skin cream or whatever. But actually skin diseases were um, considered like fatal. You know, it's, it's contagious. It's kind of like the COVID of their times. You know, it would be contagious. It would affect other people. It made you look and feel unclean. And indeed, later on, there will be, uh, rules that if anyone had this kind of disease, essentially you had to be separated from everyone, social distance, and you couldn't even come to church. You couldn't go into the temple. But he put it in, he took it out, it became leprous. He put it in, took it out, it became okay again. So it shows as if this amazing, horrible disease could be brought about and also taken away, also cured and taken away by God and God alone. You know, they didn't have a cure for this then. And it's actually one of the reasons why when Jesus cures lepers it's meant to be one of the signs that only god could have done this because it's it was still at a point of time still incurable but also it was one of those peculiar signs of moses and of god that only god could make someone clean and well and acceptable and holy and saved again so that's the second sign and he says it will happen if they will not believe you I'll listen to the voice of the first sign that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it will happen if they will not believe even the two signs. So God anticipates there will be this hardness and hesitation amongst his own people in believing Moses. And he says, this one other sign you shall do, you know, you shall take the water of the river. And so he doesn't actually do this at the mountain because he's, he's talking about um, a river so there's no river around him but it says do this when when they don't believe you and pour it on the dry land and the water they take out the river will become turned into blood and so that's i think this blood sign especially really just brings it home the knees are signs of judgment so you think of the snake you know venomous snake you think of the leprosy and this horrible disease and you think of the blood so it's not just magic tricks. They go, whoa, you know, that's cool. But any one of these signs would make you go, whoa, you know, this is something serious, deadly. It's a sign of judgment that God is pouring out upon the land, um, which has enslaved his people. So um, very awesome judgments. Uh, you also see different aspects of God's power. The snake is symbol a symbolism of creation you know creatures living creatures and then um the skin disease over his people over humanity and finally over the land you know blood over the land uh so moses is still <laughs> hesitant at this point of time i'm not eloquent i can't speak i'm slow of speech and slow of tongue so you know he he this this is the point of his hesitation he's not this great um, convincing speaker he is nervous you know he ums and ahs a lot and you know eloquent not eloquent you know you've spoken to me but i can't speak these things to others and god said i made your mouth you know i am god i can make someone mute if i wanted to i can make someone deaf or seeing or blind you know it's i who gives the senses to us you know he's the one who enables us to communicate to be able to perceive and understand he says, go, you know, I am God. I will be with you. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you how to speak. But Moses is not convinced. And he says here, 
this is such a classic verse. You, know, you could almost make imagine this as a huge poster. Lord, please send someone else. <laughs> you know, imagine a missionary being called to go to this place to preach to peoples, or someone being called into ministry by God Himself, and you say, "God, please send um, that person over there." You know, not me. I can't do this. I'm not equipped. And God got angry with reason against Moses. You know, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. talk. What about your brother Aaron? And He says essentially, Mary's Aaron is going to be. Uh, Moses's spokesman. So Moses is supposed to be God's prophet, God's mouth. But now Moses will be like God to Aaron. Whatever Moses says to Aaron, Aaron is supposed to repeat and speak before Pharaoh and his people. So he says, "Okay, we'll send Pharaoh." So not Pharaoh, send Aaron to Pharaoh. So they'll be partners. Th this kind of partnership. Cool. So uh, what happens next is Moses goes back. To Egypt, he says to his father-in-law, "I need to go." So, father-in-law Jethro says, uh, "Yep, no problem." It's interesting that here is called Jethro. Previously, it was Reuel. So, yep. So Jethro says, "Go back home," and God reassures him, "You know, go back home because all the people who wanted to kill you, they're dead." So it's a reassurance again. It's okay. Um, maybe you didn't know that the king died. Pharaoh died. Uh, that's what we found out in the last chapter. Um, but on the way, um, uh, God spoke to him again. When you go back, see that you do all the things and all the wonders that I put in your hand. But I will harden his heart. But at, and he won't let his people go. You know, God gives him this reassurance, this reminder: do all these things. But also this warning, you know, he isn't going to believe you. He isn't going to let you do this. But it's actually God behind this hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, God Himself wants Moses to do this thing. He wants Pharaoh to do this thing. But when Pharaoh says no, God is also behind that as well. So sovereign is God's power behind our motivations and behind our inclinations that you know God can, you know, exercise His power in that way as well. You know, and so then he says you're supposed to tell Pharaoh this, and he speaks to Pharaoh this son language, this son language. Verse twenty-two, Yahweh says, "Israel is my son, my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Otherwise, I will kill your firstborn son." And so um, God sees the whole of Israel, the whole of his nation, as his son. You know, as his firstborn son, and the firstborn son was the one whom, you know, as a father you loved and you bestowed all your blessing upon. He was the one who would inherit all your blessings, and so God says, "This whole nation, they are my blessing. I've given them my blessing. You cannot enslave them. If you continue to do so, I will inflict upon your son, so your most treasured possession, not you." But actually, on the one that you love the most. In other words, it's it's God uh, displaying His love for His people, and the way in which He warns Pharaoh is by warning him that He will inflict judgment upon His greatest love, His Son. Hmm. Yeah. Um, interesting. Uh, this Son language. Therefore, uh, when you think of Jesus, when you talk about Jesus as the Son of God, there's it's just a such a rich 
imagery that you find from the Old Testament, uh, because it's not just uh, just one individual son like Abraham and Isaac. You know, Abraham loved Isaac as his firstborn son, but now the whole people of God are called and this son, this treasure that will inherit all his blessings, who are then expected to walk in God's ways, to reflect his character, to obey his commands because he is their father. Yep, so on the, along the way, um, something strange happens. Um, just, just in advance, I can't say they understand this completely. What happens is God almost kills Moses. God meets Moses in this particular lodging place on his journey back to Egypt and wanted to kill him. And the only reason why he doesn't is because his wife, his wife Zipporah, takes out a knife, cuts off and circumcises his son's uh, foreskin, <laughs> and then takes it and touches his feet and then says this interesting thing, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And because of that, you know, God left him alone. So interesting. Uh, someone asked me this question before. I, I just said, I'm not sure. Um, it might show um, just how important it is for Moses to truly obey God that you know, his son wasn't circumcised and he needed to be and maybe this obedience um, or this disobedience of not obeying the law would have cost him his life. Maybe, maybe. I know that some commentaries say that. I just don't know. I'm not that convinced, actually. I think there must be some kind of foreshadowing foreshadowing towards Jesus because already it's talking about um, how some kind of blood needs to be spilt in order to save your sin or cleanse you. But then there's this like bridegroom and kind of husband kind of language. I, I don't quite get that. I don't quite understand that. But it's interesting. I know. I'll, I'll keep thinking about it. Um, I feel bad that I didn't look this up uh, because my friend asked me this like, I remember like 10 years ago, Wallace. <laughs> I never quite gave him the answer that he was looking for. Um, but yeah, here I am again at this passage and still wondering about the answer. If you know it, please let me know. Um, but yeah, so God didn't kill him because of his wife, you know, cutting off the foreskin of his son and putting it on his feet. Uh, Moses then goes out and meet, meets Aaron, or rather God calls Aaron to go and meet Moses. And Aaron goes out, meets him on God's mountain, the same mountain that he met with God in Mount Horeb. And Moses just told him everything that happened, all the signs, all the words. And together they went back. It was really quick. You know, the one, one minute they're in the mountain and the next they're meeting with all the elders. So, so they're probably back in Egypt now. So together they go back and they meet all the elders of Israel. And Moses then becomes Moses's, Aaron becomes Moses's prophet, spoke, spoke all the words that God gave to Moses, kind of like dung, 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 God, Moses, Aaron, and Aaron spoke. And then Moses did all the signs in the sight of the people and they believed. And they also were, um, I think they were really encouraged when they heard that God God had come to Israel, God had seen their suffering, their affliction, and so they worshiped God and they just praised God in that moment. Yeah, so just a very interesting narrative about how Moses got to this point whereby he is now passing on God's word to them. He didn't want to go. <laughs> he, he was so suspicious whether they would, they would believe him, but actually they did. They did believe him. And all these signs, therefore, that 
God gave to Moses was not just for their benefit, for Pharaoh's benefit, but actually for Moses to reassure Moses, hey, you know, I am with you. And I guess one takeaway from this passage is just how naturally hesitant we are to do what God wants us to do, even though God reassures us that he's with us. And the hesitation has to do more with us than it is that has anything to do with God. We tell God, you know, I can do these things. I, you haven't, you know, you haven't chosen the right person. You know, I, I don't have the skills, the confidence. And God keeps saying to them, you know, I'm with you. That's the most important thing. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who gives any person whatever gift or ability they have. And I have asked you to do this. It is your obedience and your response and faithfulness that should be to say, yes, you know, it's not me. I can't do this. That's true. But because you've asked me to do this, I will obey. Moses, um, as a sign of confession, concession, sorry, to Moses, God then, you know, gives him these signs to reassure him, allows him to go with Aaron to have this partner who will speak on behalf of him. And it shows God's condescension, his mercy, um, how he... Um, but on the other hand, he is angry Moses. You know, <laughs> he, he is frustrated when Moses says that he can't speak and he almost kills him along the way. So I guess it shows as well that, you know, God is gracious in the context that, you know, God rightly should be angry with Moses, rightly could kill him, but God doesn't. And he's overly gracious and therefore, you know, accommodating his requests of having, you know, Aaron go with him, having support, you know, having all these signs with him. When actually the most important thing God has already said he will do, he's already done. You know, says, I'm sending you. I'm with you. You know, I will do this thing. Everything that happens is within my control. And it's really at the end of the day, um, Moses to trust that what God says is true that what God says um, should be obeyed. And that's Exodus chapter 4. Cool, Luke chapter 7. I'm going to speed this up because I'm kind of tired. <laughs> so again, this, is this a long chapter? Oh, uh, oh, oh, okay, all right. This is a long chapter. Okay, so Luke chapter 7. After he had finished speaking in the hearing of the people, he entered into Capernaum. A certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and at the point of death when he heard about jesus he sent him elders of the jews asking him to come and save his servant when he came to jesus they begged him earnestly saying he is worthy for you to do this for him for he loves our nation and he built our synagogue for us jesus went with them when he was now not far from the house the centurion sent friends to him saying to him lord don't trouble yourself for i'm not worthy for you to come under my roof therefore i didn't even think of myself worthy to come to you but say the word and my servant will be healed for i am a man uh, I also am a man placed under authority, having under myself soldiers. I tell this one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude who followed him, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, no, not in Israel. Those who were sent returning to the house found that the servant who had been sick was well. So Jesus here heals uh, remote control. <laughs> at the request of this person initially who asked for him to come. So the centurion is not a Jew, is not a Christian, uh, but, you know, he has this influence. He helped build this synagogue. He, he rich guy, powerful guy. A centurion is a person who's in charge of um, soldiers. You know, think of the word century. Century is a hundred years. So a centurion is someone who's in charge of a hundred soldiers. So he's like this commander, you know, a big shot. 
and uh, but he's not a Jew again. Uh, but somehow, you know, he is empathetic. You know, he is kind towards them. He even helps them. He loves our nation. He says there, all these leaders speak very well of him. So Jesus says, "Yep, okay, I'll go with you." But just as he's about to reach the house. The centurion says, uh, please, I don't deserve to have you come in. And here again, it shows actually he is genuinely considerate because, you know, he is unclean. He is a Gentile coming into a Gentile's house. You know, that might be a no-no. And he just doesn't want Jesus to do more than he has to. And he understands how Jesus works because he says, I too am a man under authority. You know, I am this big shop. I actually have other people above me. And my authority is derived. I receive it from Rome. And that's why I have this power, this authority over these, these hundred people. So therefore, when I speak to any of these soldiers, you know, do this, do that. They have to do this and do that because I'm speaking with the authority that I've received. And that's the amazing thing that uh, Jesus says that he has not found any such person of faith in the whole country. of. That means, imagine Jesus saying, this one non-Christian, is much more believing, much more faithful, much more understanding of who I am than everyone in your church, everyone in your Bible study, even including your pastors, including you as the leaders <laughs> who brought him there. It says, I've not found the whole country, the whole of the UK, imagine. I've not found someone of the faith of this one centurion who understands that my authority comes from God. And that's what he's implying. You know, Jesus, you can just speak this. And it will happen. You don't actually have to even come to my house. You can do this because your authority comes from God himself. And that's why Jesus, he marveled at him. He goes, whoa. Imagine he is going, whoa, with you. you know, what would you have to do? Oftentimes it's bad things. <laughs> you go, whoa, why are you doing that? But imagine a good thing whereby you understand that Jesus really, really is God's son and everything he says is true and faithful will happen. And Jesus says, that's this guy, this centurion. Verse 11, soon afterward, he went into a city called Nain. Many of his disciples, along with a great multitude, went with him. Now, when he came near to the gate of the city, behold, one who was dead was carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Many people of the city were with her. When he, the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Don't cry. He came near and touched the coffin, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I tell you, arise. He who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he gave him to his mother. Fear took hold of all, and he glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. This report went out uh, concerning all, concerning him in the whole of Judea and in all the surrounding regions. Excuse me. So Jesus heals this guy who is dead, who's being carried through the village, and accompanying him is his mother, who is a widow. So, you know, G this widow means he she's lost her husband, and now she's lost her son as well. And so she's lost any form of support. She's lost, you know, all the loves of her life, all the men of her life. And Jesus, when he heals this guy, notice he gives him back to his mother. In other words, Jesus does this miracle not for the guy, not for the young man, but because out of compassion for this mother, he wants to give her back something that she's lost. And in order to do that, he raises this guy from the dead. He, it says here, he came here and touched the coffin. In Jewish cultures, they didn't have a coffin. They have this piece of wood, kind of like this piece of wood. Imagine a dead body in there and people carrying this piece of wood. Jesus touched this piece of wood. And, you know, that's a no-no. That makes you unclean. Touching a body is unclean. But what happens is Jesus touched it, and he actually speaks to this dead body, 
a young boy, young man, you know, get up. And this idea of arise or get up is the same idea of the resurrection, how we will rise from death, the same way that this man rises from this death again. But not to resurrected life, just to resuscitated life, he will die again. But at least for this moment, it means that this person is back to life and back to, the, back to be able to be loved by his mother. And here it shows us Jesus' amazing power, you know, over the dead, but also his compassion, why he does it, not just how, not just what he does, but he does this to show his compassion and his love to someone who is really lost, um, lost um, a treasured person to death. Um, death is one of those things that doesn't just end you. It ends that relationship and essentially death it's not just a um, finishing point, but it's a break, a break in a relationship. And it shows that relationships are meant to be eternal. Relationships are meant to be strong. But death comes around and breaks and cuts loose this eternal and this special and this love thing that God has come to join back together, ultimately with himself. That's what eternal life is about. Eternal life is joining back that connection, that relationship with God. And that's, that's what we should see in terms of this new life that Jesus promises us. And we see it foreshadowed here in this new life. Actually, when you think of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have this new life, you really need to understand death before you can understand life. You need to think about the greatest relationship that's broken down, that's lost, that's just been killed. And how Jesus, if he was able to bring that back to life again, you know, how he does that in order to restore and to resuscitate something that is dead, that's lost, that's killed by sin. Cool. Um, everyone got, everyone freaked out. They glorified God because obviously this was, this was, this was incredible. Jesus raising the dead. Um, by the way, I know that there are overtones here with uh, Elijah going to the widow as well. And um, yeah, so Jesus kind of like does that miracle similar to the Old Testament, meaning he's in the line of this succession of the prophets and he's the greater prophet and he's the greatest king. But it shows that he is a fulfillment of that, you know, work of God that was done ever since in the Old Testament. He foreshadows that. Verse 18, the disciples of John told him about all these things. <clears throat> John, calling to himself two of his disciples, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is coming, or should we look for another? <laughs> when the men had come to him, they said, John the baptizer has sent us to you, saying, Are you he who comes, or should we look for another? It's repeated both times. You know, John saying to his disciples, John's disciples saying to him, and in other words, you know, John can't say this to himself directly because John is in prison at this point of time, remember. But John is unsure. You know, here I am languishing in prison. Oh, you know, I've been telling people God is coming, God is coming, and tell, telling them that you're the person who's going to bring about God's judgment and kingdom and this new era. But I'm still in prison, and now I'm having second thoughts. He says, are you that person, or should we wait for another person? You know, it's kind of like, I missed this bus. You know, maybe that wasn't the bus I was looking for. Maybe you're waiting for that other bus. Maybe maybe it's not you, Jesus. Maybe it's someone who is greater than you, is going to do something different from you. And Jesus answers him uh, in a way that is meant to reassure him, you know, that, that he really has displayed the evidences to show that you should not lose heart in him. 
In that hour he cured many diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and to many who were blind he gave sight. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news. Preach to them, blessed is he who finds no occasion for stumbling in me. And it says, Don't, don't stumble, don't lose hope. And I'll look at all these signs of this new age that's come through. It's not just that Jesus is doing this amazing things of healing, but the idea that blind can see, the deaf can hear, you know, the lame can walk, it's meant to be symbolic of this new age, of this new kingdom that's breaking into this world. It's uh, all prophecies from Isaiah. We saw this a few chapters ago in chapter 4. It says this, uh, this is fulfilled in your hearing. It talks about, you know, the blind being able to see again. It's again not just Jesus showing off his power, but this is the power of the dawning new kingdom when there will be no more death and no more suffering. There will be this new age of life and resurrected life and relationship with God. So it says it's, it's happening. It's happening. Don't lose heart. Verse 24, when John's messengers had departed, he began to tell the multitudes about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are gorgeously dressed and live delicately are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I tell you, among those who are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the baptizer, yet he who is least in God's kingdom is greater than he. Um, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they declared God to be just, having been baptized with John's baptism. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the counsel of God, not being baptized by him. Um, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation? Whether they like, they are like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another, saying, We piped for you and you didn't dance. We mourned and you didn't weep. For John the baptizer came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a glutton and, gluttonous man and a drunkard, drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Oh, this is a long chapter. Okay, Jesus, after speaking to John and passing on the message, you know, John, hold on, you know, you, you haven't got it wrong. He turns to everyone else who possibly heard that conversation and says, ha, 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 you know, John's lost heart. And essentially, he's defending John. He calls John the greatest person born of woman. <laughs> Where does he say that? Out of all the those born of women, there's no one greater, no greater prophet than he. And yet he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John. So you think of the Old Testament, all the prophets coming up, John is greater than all the prophets before this, including Moses, including David. John is the greatest one because he is in the edge of the coming of the kingdom of God. But he says, now that the kingdom of God has come, the least in the kingdom is greater than John, meaning you are greater than John and Elijah and Isaiah and Moses and David and Abraham. You know, just because you have this privilege of seeing Jesus for who he is. And that's what he confers on as greatness, as being able to have that privilege, that perspective of being able to see that Jesus really is the person who brings in the kingdom of God because he's the king. And, uh, but he, he said, you know, what were your expectations? What do you expect to see? 
and he gives us a few options a reed shaken by the wind you know a flimsy thing nobody you know a pushover no john was like judgment 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 you know he was this man's man or did you go out to see this gq uh soft clothing guy says no that that's not john either he didn't live in luxury he ate locusts he wore secondhand clothes that kind of thing you know those people who are well dressed they 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 have the good life they they're living in you know london in in the high streets you know they're they're in king's courts but what did you go out to see? A prophet. And John is more than just a prophet. He is the prophet. You know, I will send my messenger before your face. Again, Malachi 3 and Malachi 4 are so important. Every time we mention John, they always mention Malachi 3. I will send my messenger, my Malachi. Malachi means messenger, my messenger before your face. And the idea is before God comes, the opening act for God is this one messenger, my messenger, and that's John. And when you see this messenger, it means the next person is going to be God. There's not going to be any other kind of like opening acts, any other tiny prophets. After this, it's that's it. That's the final act. Then God comes and the opening uh, scene will be God's kingdom has arrived. So that's why, you know, he is the greatest. But if you are in the kingdom, you are greater than he. But um, people rejected him. And so Jesus then brings uh, this, what does he do? He, he is describing the fickleness of the re responses and the reactions of the people to John and also to himself. You know, uh, he, he says, it's, this generation is like this song. You know, the children are singing in this song. You know, we played this song and you didn't dance. We mourn and you didn't weep. So it's kind of like uh, we, nothing seems to be to their taste. Um, you know, we gave you hot pot and you go, oh, too spicy. We gave you uh, ice cream, so, oh, too cold, that kind of thing. I don't want to taste any of this thing. Or what else, you know, um, maybe, um, I don't know, Marvel movie. Oh, wow, you know, uh, that, that's so action-packed. Oh, no, you know, I don't like superheroes. And then you you show, I don't know, a Lord of the Rings. Oh, no, that's too deep, that's too long. You know, again, you ju you're just disinterested. You're just a, uh, a wet blanket. You, you just don't want to, to respond. And you have this hardness. I, what, no matter what happens, no matter what God throws at me, I will not give, I'll play cool. I won't respond. And that's why it says, you know, no matter what we did, it's not actually objective, your reaction. You just decided, you're just hardened in your heart to reject any kind of input from God. So John, he came in one way, you know, he, he ate bread, he drank wine, he said he is a demon. And Jesus, um, no, sorry, John came and he did not. <laughs> he was, he, he abstained. He was this person who didn't eat bread or drink wine. Imagine he was the person during Lent who fasted every day, prayed every day. He says, oh, this guy is a fanatic. He has a demon. He's, 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 he, he's a fundamentalist. You know, he is just over the top. You know, don't, don't follow someone like John. You know, he'll just push you over the edge. But Jesus, the son of man comes and he eats and he drinks throughout Lent. And, you know, he's eating, you know, whatever it is every day, pizzas and uh, Coke. And, you know, it's, uh, this guy, he, he's a drunk. You know, he, he's, he's just over the top. He has no self-control. And he hangs out with all these horrible, horrible friends. And essentially, Jesus is saying, 
God has sent you every and every permutation of what it means to almost draw you into a response. Trust in me. Know that this is my servant, you know, speaking to you. And you just find any and every reason to reject it. You just find an excuse. And Jesus says, therefore, wisdom is justified by her children. And so the, the wise person acts wisely you know wisdom producing these children there's there's a kind of fruit of wisdom you can't just say that you're wise you can't just speak wise things and especially this is a convicting truth for anyone who's like preaching the gospel or teaching bible study there needs to be a kind of consistency with what you do how you live with what you say and what you think you know this these pharisees they had a lot of theology has a demon uh they had a lot of opinions you know this guy has a friend of the wrong kind of people that they, they said all kinds of things but they did nothing there is nothing consistent with the actions of their words you know they just like to talk and it was just empty talk you know just excuses after excuses yep so okay all right so the last bit um, let's see verse 36 one of the pharisees invited him to eat with him he entered into the pharisee's house and sat at a table behold a woman in the city who was a sinner when she knew that uh, behold a woman in the city who was a sinner when she knew that he was reclining in the pharisee's house brought an alabaster jar of ointment standing behind at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hair of her head kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment now when the pharisee who had invited him saw it he said to himself this man if he were a prophet would have perceived who and what kind of woman this is who touches him that she is a sinner jesus answered him simon i have something to tell you he said teacher say on a certain lender had two debtors the one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. when they couldn't pay he forgave them both which of them therefore love will love him most simon answered he i suppose to whom he forgave the most he said to him you've judged correctly turning to the woman he said to simon do you see this woman i entered into your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head you gave me no kiss but since the time i came in has not ceased to kiss my feet you didn't anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But one to whom little is forgiven loves little. He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice something really important. If Jesus, Jesus didn't say anything, you know, no one would know what was going on inside Simon's head. Because up until the point, Jesus says, verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. Everything that happens here, you know, is just from the perspective of this guy named Simon the Pharisee. He thinks it inside his head. He doesn't say it out to Jesus, but he thinks it to Jesus. What kind of person is Jesus? You know, if Jesus knew what kind of person this this woman was, he wouldn't let her touch him. You know, that's what he says. This man, if he were a prophet, he would have known, you know, that this is an unclean woman. You know, he looks like, go away, you know, don't touch me. 
But in other words, Simon's thinking, ah, but I know. You see, I know what kind of woman this is. I so he's he's judging Jesus. He's judging the woman, and he's judging himself. Jesus is not a prophet. This woman is a sinner. And hey, I'm hot stuff. I'm the one who's throwing this dinner. I'm a Pharisee. I uh, know I I'm just sizing everyone up. It's please don't do this. You know when you go to church, you walk inside. You don't say anything to anyone, but you kind of size up the person who's giving the talk. You're sizing up this live stream or that kind of live stream, and you have all these thoughts inside of you. you go, <laughs> I'm so good, and all these people are losers. And Jesus doesn't quite say to him, Simon, please don't think these horrible things. He tells him a story. Well, there are these two guys who lent money, and one person owed five、uh, hundred. Think of it, five、um, hundred pounds. Actually, it's a lot more than that. Denarius、uh, times maybe five thousand pounds, and the other like five hundred pounds. And says so. Essentially,、um, one tenth. One one owes ten times the amount. One owes this much amount. And he and he says this guy forgave both of them. Forget it. Don't have to pay me back. He says which one would love him more? And Simon goes, yeah, I suppose, I suppose it's this guy who forgave him the most. And the fact that Simon says I suppose means he kind of gets what Jesus is saying to him. You know, which one has the right perspective of what it means to? Love someone else to be considerate, and I think he doesn't get quite get everything yet, Simon. At this point of time, but he realizes that what he's been thinking has been very unloving, you know, towards towards Jesus, towards the people around him. You know, he's he is, and and essentially,、uh, already, if you didn't, if Jesus didn't give the explanation of this, you realize this is a very petty person. You know, he's thinking a very very small minded person, the the person who only has been forgiven fifty,、uh, who thinks in this way. But Jesus goes on to explain it in full.、He、says you have judged correctly, so you you get this, you you understand where I'm going with this. And then he turns to the woman, and he says to Simon, you know, you see this woman. Obviously, he's seen her. I entered into your house. You gave me nothing. You gave me no water, but she gave me everything. She wet my feet with her tears. She wiped them with the hair of her head. You know, she she this person who has nothing gave me everything, just even her tears, and she her hair. You know, that means she was willing to lower herself in order to serve Jesus. She didn't think of herself better than him, higher than him. No, she realized that she owed Jesus everything. You gave me no kiss, but she since the time she came and has not ceased to kiss my feet. Again, lowering herself. You know, imagine. Imagine kissing your own feet. You know you wouldn't want to do that. Oh, you know, but kissing someone else's feet—that's a sign of love and gratitude, and maybe mourning over your own position, but then thankfulness towards the other person. Says you didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with this ointment. And here it's talking about that. Alabaster jar of ointment and this expensive ointment. And it's、uh, you would have used the cheap stuff, in other words. But she used this the most expensive thing that she had. And she says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, you're right. You know, she is very sinful. She has a lot of things that she needs to be ashamed of. All wiped out, all forgiven, because she loved much. But the one who to whom little is forgiven. Loves little, and then he says, "Your sins are forgiven to the woman." And he says to her again, "Your faith has saved you. Go in peace." And here is a very convicting truth that Jesus makes 
well, this connection between love and forgiveness. How much do you love Jesus? How much do you love the people around you? Well, apparently, Jesus is saying you can tell how much a person has been forgiven by how much they've been loved. Uh, you, you know, uh, usually you can tell how much a person has sinned. That, that's the thing that's obvious by, by looking at them. But, you know, you can't really tell how much that sin has been forgiven. Oftentimes you think, you know, uh, that person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. But actually, when that person loves, when a person understands how, you know, how much mercy has been shown to him or her, and then, therefore, as an outpour of thanks, they love and they, you know, lower themselves and they humbly serve the person who's forgiven them. And, you know, think of God again, forgiving our sins. Think of someone to whom, you know, who's really shown you so much mercy. You know, uh, maybe you really deserve to be scolded by them, by, you know, judged by them. But actually, they showed you so much kindness instead. Naturally, you go, wow, you know, thank you. You know, how can I thank you? You know, I, I, I'm so sorry. It's that combination of um, uh, uh, humility and thankfulness, but also gratefulness. And you, you just want to outpour your love towards that person. That's where this woman is at because she realizes how much her sin offends God, but how much, you know, God's forgiveness means to her. And that's how her love overflows out of that. But maybe, therefore, the flip side to that, for someone like Simon, who's going around judging everyone, says, oh, that person is a sinner, that person didn't preach really well, oh, that person is causing so much trouble, it's maybe because, maybe, maybe, they've never experienced that kind of forgiveness or that awareness of their own sin before God before. And therefore, that kind of embargoed love, that kind of, like, I will save my love for another day, I will save my love for someone who really deserves it, shows that you've never been shown such love before by God. Because otherwise, it would just be natural. No one would need to tell you to pour out this kind of love and this kind of repentance towards God. You know, you would just do so because you'd just be overwhelmed by it. But that coldness, that unresponsiveness, you know, the, ones, the, the thing that we saw before this, that always finding a reason to criticize others, especially the person who's calling you to repent, calling you to love you, you just have... You just have that really good reason, that really good excuse that come back towards that person. Shows that tragic reality that maybe your sins aren't forgiven. Maybe you don't see how you have sinned against God. And maybe you don't realize what a tremendous gift it is that Jesus offers you, that He wants to forgive your sin. He offers you eternal life. He gives it to you, but you reject it. And therefore, you don't have it. And that's why you don't love because of it. Yeah, so those are our two passages for today. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please, please, Lord, help us to love in this way. You know, not just to be loving people, but to respond to the love that you've shown us, such that it overflows to the people around us. Thank you, Jesus, for your love shown to us on the cross. And thank you, Jesus, you know, that... In our worship before you, in our humility as we bow down before the cross, you know, you lift us up in your mercy and you call us, you know, you call us to serve you and to serve your people with the love that you've given us. Help us to do this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See you tonight.